When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Second World War had ended. America was on top of the world. Everything seemed to be in our favor. But President Harry Truman was worried. The unknown was still encroaching, so he decided to act. Behind closed doors, Truman and his advisors put together an entirely new power structure for America the intelligence wing of the U.S. government. Everyone knew institutions such as the Department of Defense and the Central Intelligence Agency existed, even if their operations were highly guarded. But years later, a cache of secret documents leaked to the public. These documents spoke of a secret agency with even higher clearance than the CIA. The members were known as the Majestic Twelve. Their mission? To keep the public insulated from the truth about extraterrestrials and our interactions with them. In other words, the Majestic Twelve were the original men in black. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Claire. This is our first episode investigating the mystery of the Majestic 12, also known as MJ-12, a supposedly top-secret government agency dedicated to the study and cover-up of the United States' interaction with alien life forms following the incident at Roswell in 1947. This group's existence came to light through a series of documents leaked to UFO researchers in the 1980s and became, for many, the linchpin between all strange and unexplained events in U.S. history. This week, We'll first examine the background of verified U.S. government research into the UFO phenomenon, and then take a look into the contents of the documents themselves. From there, we will try to determine the authenticity of these leaks and examine the mystery of who leaked them in the first place and why. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. In June 1947, something happened in New Mexico. It was an arid piece of desert land. Heat waves pressed down onto the dusty ground before radiating back into the air. Normally, it was completely empty of any major action. But then something crashed into a forgotten desert valley, 30 miles north of Roswell. Humble farm foreman William Brazel expected another long, sweaty day beneath the southwest sun. But on June 14th, he saw smoke drifting on the horizon. At first, Brazel thought he better mind his own business. He had heard the rumors military bases were scattered around the area. He didn't want to stick his nose into something off the books. But after a few weeks, curiosity took its toll. When Brazel climbed down into the valley where he had seen the smoke weeks earlier, he found a huge pile of debris, strange metallic shapes, things that appeared to have advanced technological function, not an everyday sight in the middle of the desert. Back in town, Brazel approached the local sheriff with his number one theory. It was a flying saucer, or one of those UFOs the national papers kept writing about. Needless to say, the nearby Roswell Army Airfield was notified. Major Jesse Marcel was ordered to investigate the crash site, led there by Brazel. Now, at this point in the history, narrative and history become clouded. This is a common problem in the world of UFO research. What is known for certain is that Marcel himself escorted the debris to a research center in Fort Worth, Texas, where it was determined that the device was nothing more than a government-issued weather balloon. Word got back to Roswell, and seemingly that was that. Thirty years passed before the incident would re-emerge into public consciousness, and this was due to the work of a new breed of pop-cultural researchers, the so-called ufologists. Stanton T. Friedman may be the most important of these figures, before 1978, he was a nuclear physicist and occasional author. Afterwards, he was known as the man who defined the Roswell conspiracy. In 1978, Friedman released an interview with Jesse Marcel, the RAAF officer who brought the Roswell debris to Fort Worth. Shockingly, Marcel claimed that the entire incident had been a huge cover-up. His superiors had told him to keep his mouth shut. Only now, years down the road, did Marcel believe it was safe for him to speak the truth. And what was that truth? In Marcel's words, the debris discovered at Roswell was, quote, nothing made on this earth, end quote. Like that, the doors were blown open. The ufologists were officially in the building and it was their time to rewrite the history of Roswell. In 1980, a significant work, The Roswell Incident, written by Charles Berlitz and William Moore, introduced key elements still associated with Roswell today. 
The debris came from a crashed alien saucer that was struck down by lightning while observing U.S. nuclear tests. The United States government hid the truth to, quote, counteract the growing hysteria toward flying saucers, end quote. Friedman soon came along with a new book. Here was where the Roswell conspiracy as we know it crystallized. It wasn't just alien spacecraft recovered and hidden at Roswell. There were recovered alien life forms as well. With ease, these ufologists wrote of the secret history of the United States. In the mind of these ufologists and their rapt audiences, the U.S. government had engaged in a massive cover-up. It wasn't until the late 1980s, though, that the UFO believer community came forward with what they believed was definitive proof. This is when the Majestic 12 documents first came to light. But before we return to the ufologists and their discovery of the leaked documents, let's step back in time to examine the birth of the UFO phenomenon and the beginning of our government's interest in these strange sightings in the sky. The most reported on UFO sighting in the 1940s was on June 24, 1947. A civilian pilot soaring high above the Cascade Mountains in Washington state observed nine strange objects zoom past his own aircraft. At the time, it received far more coverage and speculation than Roswell did. The spread of this news through national media defined the peak of the 1940s UFO craze. Thousands and thousands of sightings poured in from all over the world. Interestingly, this was the big UFO story of the 1940s, not Roswell. Was it just the side effect of wider access and distribution of media? Or was there truly something strange going on? Whatever it was, General Nathan Twining, commander of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, authorized the organization of Project Sign, the first official U.S. government investigation into unidentified flying objects. Into the 1950s, Project Sign first evolved into Project Grudge, and then finally into Project Blue Book. The goals of the group were clearly defined as follows, to determine if these UFO reports should be considered threats to national security, and to analyze and identify their origins. Over 12,000 reports and sightings were collected under sign, grudge, and blue book. In 1968, the results were summarized in the Condon Report. The following is a direct quote from the report. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to national security. There was no evidence discovered that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. There was no evidence indicating that sightings were extraterrestrial vehicles." End quote. Later analysis provided the following statistics of the 12,618 reports analyzed by Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book. 
69% of the analyzed cases were found to have known causes, such as weather phenomena, misidentified aircraft, or even military aircraft test flights. 9% lacked sufficient information to determine a cause, although none of these had outstanding evidence pointing to the unknown or extraterrestrial. And yes, still 22% remained completely unexplained. While these statistics did little to close the book on the extraterrestrial question for the obsessives involved in Project Blue Book and the media, it seemed to be enough for the U.S. government. Project Blue Book was officially shut down in December 1969. Yet some ufologists clung to one great last hope. In 1956, former USAF Captain Edward Ruppelt wrote a book detailing his time in the Air Force researching UFOs. In this book, Ruppelt mentioned the term estimate of the situation. These were the official documents one turned in after diving deep into a case. Estimates of the situation provided a summary of the potential sighting and a judgment call on what it may have signified. Throughout the history of Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, countless estimates were turned in at the command center at Wright-Patterson Base. But Ruppelt singles out one estimate in particular. In July of 1948, a major investigation started around what is known as the Child's Witted Encounter. Two professional commercial air pilots reported that an object moving like a torpedo through the sky nearly collided with their aircraft. After months of working on the report, an estimate of the situation was compiled. The official designation of this estimate of the situation was that the object was extraterrestrial in nature. But this caused a huge rift within Project Sign. There were members who refused to accept this estimate, who thought it was absurd. Conflicting belief in or against the document split apart the membership of the Project Sign and every copy of the estimate of the child's witted encounter was destroyed. Ufologists posit that this reaction points to a split within Air Force leadership over the extraterrestrial debate. And it placed the child's witted estimate of the situation as the holy grail of UFO documents. That is, until on one sunny December morning in Burbank, California, 1984, when a new set of documents took center stage. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now the story continues. On that sunny December day in 1984, a mysterious visitor dropped something through the mail slot at Jamie Chandere's house. Chandere was primarily a film producer, but his imagination and passion for science fiction led him into side work as an amateur ufologist. Imagine his surprise then, when he arrived home to find a package, unmarked except for a mail stamp from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Inside, a film canister containing a small roll of 35 millimeter film. 
Chanderay immediately called his more experienced friend and fellow ufologist, William Moore, who wrote the seminal Roswell Incident book in 1980. Before we continue, it's important to note that the story of this discovery was only told by Chanderay and Moore themselves. In this episode, we'll be telling it as they did. Next week, we will analyze their story in search of the truth. Until then, put yourself in the shoes of an earnest ufologist and imagine making this discovery yourself. When they displayed the footage, they expected something truly strange. Perhaps unseen footage of UFOs over American skies, or maybe images of secret alien spacecraft or weapons hoarded away in a bunker such as Area 51 or Dolce Base. And just maybe, if they really hit the gold mine, they would be the first civilians in 30 years to see the rumored alien life forms recovered at Roswell. The possibilities were limitless. Instead, the footage was just photocopies of government documents. Bland, unassuming. But when Chanderay and Moore developed and printed out these documents, their excitement grew again. This wasn't the lost child's witted estimate. This was something even better. They spent long nights going over and over these documents until a clear picture began to form in their minds. The first document opened with, quote, warning, this is a top secret, eyes-only document containing compartmentalized information essential to the national security of the United States of America. Eyes-only access to the material herein is strictly limited to those possessing Majestic 12-level clearance, end quote. There it was, in the wording and stamped across the heading of the document, Majestic 12. Chanderay and Moore couldn't believe it. Two low-level sleuths in a Burbank, California bungalow had possibly discovered the darkest secret of the U.S. government. The fate of this top-secret information was now in their hands. They did the only thing that seemed logical at the time. They kept digging. What follows now is what they claimed to have found in those documents and what they believed the world-changing implications of this information represented. The first document in the MJ-12 leak was a briefing from 1954 addressed directly to the new incoming president, Dwight Eisenhower. This is how the Eisenhower briefing begins. Quote, Operation Majestic 12 is a top-secret research and development intelligence operation responsible directly to the President of the United States, established by a special classified executive order of President Truman on 24 September 1947, upon recommendation by Dr. Vannevar Bush and Secretary James Forrestal, end quote. This document's apparent purpose was to bring the new president up to date on the recent development of a secretive agency operating at the highest levels of government. The second document included in the leak to Chanderay has now become known as the Truman Letter. It appears to be a letter from former President Harry Truman himself, 
addressed to the first Secretary of Defense and founding Majestic 12 leader, James Forrestal. Quote, Dear Secretary Forrestal, it continues to be my feelings that any future considerations relative to the ultimate disposition of this matter should rest solely with the office of the president following appropriate discussions with yourself, Dr. Bush, and the director of central intelligence. End quote. While much shorter than the Eisenhower briefing, it appeared to confirm that President Truman had expanded executive power to a degree no one in public American life thought possible. He essentially put himself in control of an agency that only 13 people knew existed. Indeed, it reads as a nearly unconstitutional breach. Chandray and Moore later acquired a third document, supposedly from the National Archives in D.C. They deemed it the Cutler Memo. This memo from presidential aide Robert Cutler to USAF General Nathan Twining mentions that the president has rescheduled the meeting for the MJ-12 group. In the eyes of Chandray and Moore, this confirmed that Eisenhower continued the MJ-12 program after Truman. Stamped across the heading of the Eisenhower briefing document was another strange acronym, MAGIC, spelled M-A-J-I-C. Our amateur ufologists theorized this acronym might represent what the Majestic 12 became after Eisenhower took over, and perhaps what they were still called at the highest level of government secrecy in modern times. But there was still so much left in the shadows. What were the specifics that could be gathered from these documents? What were the clues that might point the way forward? The Eisenhower briefing is the most detailed and informative document on this front. After the opening cited above, it proceeds for eight pages. Following the introduction, the document proceeds to build a timeline for President Eisenhower's understanding of MJ-12's development. Of course, it all seems to lead back to Project Sign and the initial UFO craze of the 1940s. After briefly mentioning the most prolific UFO sighting of that era over the Cascade Mountains, the briefing finally circles around to Roswell. Quote, On 7 July 1947, a secret operation was begun to assure recovery of the wreckage of this object for scientific study. During the course of this operation, serial reconnaissance discovered that four small human-like beings had apparently ejected from the aircraft before it exploded. These had fallen to earth about two miles east of the wreckage site. All four were dead and badly decomposed due to action by predators and exposure to the elements during the approximately one-week time period which had elapsed before their discovery. A special scientific team took charge of removing these bodies for study. The wreckage of the craft was also removed to several different locations. Civilian and military witnesses in the area were debriefed and news reporters were given the effective cover story that the object had been a misguided weather research balloon, end quote. 
The infamous mythology, written in an official government document. It seemed too good to be true. The briefing continued as follows, quote, A covert analytical effort organized by General Twining and Dr. Bush, acting on direct orders of the president, resulted in a preliminary consensus on 19 September 1947 that the disk was most likely a short-range reconnaissance craft. A similar analysis of the four dead occupants was arranged by Dr. Bronk. It was the tentative conclusion of this group on 30 November 1947 that although these creatures are human-like in appearance, the biological and evolutionary processes responsible for their development has apparently been quite different from those observed or postulated in Homo sapiens. Dr. Bronk's team has suggested the term extraterrestrial biological entities, EBEs, be adopted as the standard term of reference for these creatures until such time as a more definitive designation can be agreed upon. End quote. Following this determination, it seemed that Truman put into motion the organization of Majestic 12. This agency would oversee all of the research conducted by the official UFO investigations Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, but would remain at a higher secret clearance. Its initial leadership was composed of 12 members, hence the name. Majestic 12's top man was Dr. Vannevar Bush, the chairman of the Joint Research and Development Board during World War II, who had overseen the Manhattan Project. The MJ-12 leaks confirmed that Truman appointed Bush to lead the group's efforts. Admiral Roscoe Hillencotter, the first director of the CIA, was also a member. Interestingly enough, the supposed creation of MJ-12 on September 24, 1947, chronologically links with the official creation of the CIA on July 26, 1947, and the National Security Council and Department of Defense, both on September 18, 1947. Did Truman create all of these intelligence agencies in order to mask the formation of the real secret group, MJ-12? Either way, leaders from all of these Truman-created organizations would find a place on the MJ-12 roster. There were leaders such as Secretary of Defense James Forrestal and Air Force General Nathan Twining. There was General Hoyt Vanderberg, former Chief of Military Intelligence, and biophysicist Dr. Detlev Brunk, who supposedly led the alien autopsies. Admiral Sidney Sowers, the executive secretary of the National Security Council, and Gordon Gray, the CIA's new psychological strategy chief, were also included. There was a famed aerospace engineer, a Harvard astrophysicist, an atomic weapons expert, and the CIA's expert on UFO research. Above them all, of course, was the president, the creator of the MJ-12 Council and its permanent leader. All secrets would necessarily flow through them. All in all, if ever a counter-UFO team were to be put together, this seemed to be a strong one. And because they were up against such a vague and ill-defined threat, 
the secrecy of the group was deemed necessary. The following is a final excerpt from the Eisenhower briefing. Quote, Implications for the national security are of continuing importance, in that the motives and ultimate intentions of these visitors remain completely unknown. In addition, a significant upsurge in the surveillance activity of these craft beginning in May and continuing through the autumn of this year has caused considerable concern that the new developments may be imminent. It is for these reasons, as well as the obvious international and technological considerations and the ultimate need to avoid a public panic at all costs, that the Majestic 12 group remains of the unanimous opinion that the imposition of the strictest security precautions should continue without interruption into the new administration." End quote. In secret, they would observe and protect as best they could. But could this have been a justifiable action? If the origins and function of the mysterious Majestic 12 are factual, how can it be seen as anything but a huge breach in democracy? If true, it means that there is a secret history of the United States of America following World War II. In one strand, history as we know it. In the other, a world of extreme conspiracy and deception exists on the fringes of our government. Is there any proof beyond these documents that the MJ-12 or magic ever really existed? If you can set aside your skepticism for just a moment, it might be possible that another world is indeed hiding out of sight. To catch a glimpse, the best place to begin is the end of World War II. And the best person to follow to the truth may in fact be MJ-3 himself. The first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Through Forrestal's personal history, a wider saga emerges one that entangles presidents and a few other infamous American mysteries. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now let's continue the story. The war with Germany was over. James Forrestal arrived in Penemunda, Germany to inspect one of the Nazis' research and development centers. Forrestal was on a tour of such Nazi sites as the United States collected information on the type of work Nazi Germany had accomplished in the name of world domination. Penemunda, for example, was where German scientists like Werner von Braun developed the V-2 single-stage rocket propelled by liquid propellant. The U.S. and other allies were engaged in a race of sorts to capture as much of this scientific information as possible. The Soviet Union was no longer an ally, so any gain over their own technological knowledge was a huge one. Forrestal was a key member of the American vanguard in this effort. When von Braun, along with 1,600 other Nazi scientists, turned themselves over to the Americans, their relocation to American research centers came to be called Operation Paperclip. We know this as the true beginning of the space race against the Soviet Union. It was von Braun's research and skills that developed the three-stage rocket that would send Americans into space and to the moon. For many, however, 
The discovery of the MJ-12 documents added another layer of complexity to Forrestal's work at this former Nazi research center. Some now believe that Forrestal found much more than V-2 rocket research during this tour. Some believe he discovered that the Nazis were also researching found UFO technology. In other words, Nazi Germany had its own Roswell. It is documented that during wartime, UFO reports spiked in both America and Europe. The common refrain is that there was a lot of military research going on at the time. Many ufologists posit this is more MJ-12-level disinformation, or even speculate that the UFOs were Nazis utilizing technology they had repurposed from downed alien spacecraft. Ridiculous or not, the theory continues as such. Forrestal's discovery of this technology directly led to his appointment to the Majestic 12 Council. Operation Paperclip, the secret program that brought Nazi scientists to America, was instituted for the space race. But in this theorized version of American history, it was a much different type of space race. These scientists were recruited for their knowledge of UFO technology and were even brought on board to investigate the alien crafts recovered at Roswell. Throughout all of this, James Forrestal oversaw the organization of Truman's network of secrecy. However, it is historically known that by the middle of 1948, something had drastically shifted in the relationship between Truman and Forrestal. History books put the blame on Forrestal's inability to balance the defense budget. Forrestal, like many in the country, counted on Truman losing the 1948 election. But Truman gained a surprise re-election victory. By early January 1949, Forrestal was convinced he would be replaced. Those closest to him began to worry about his mental state. He was increasingly paranoid and believed that Air Force Secretary Stuart Symington had ordered spies to follow him wherever he went. The insidious nature of this rumored history reaches a climax at Forrestal's retirement ceremony. It was a quiet, polite affair, much like Forrestal himself. Truman wanted to usher Forrestal out in a respectable manner, but it was Symington who had the last word. On the way out of the party, Symington invited Forrestal into a car that would return the former defense secretary to his private office. No one knows the exact subject or contents of this conversation, but by the time Forrestal arrived at his office, something inside of him had irrevocably changed. Forrestal's assistant claimed to have found the former defense secretary sitting alone in his office after the car ride, staring at the wall, repeating the words, you are a loyal fellow, over and over again. The Air Force took Forrestal away from Washington for medical treatment, a somewhat unusual detail, as Forrestal was never directly involved specifically in the Air Force. But Symington was, and so were powerful members of the supposed Majestic 12, like General Nathan Twining. Forrestal was first taken to a psychologist in Florida. 
Reports show he had completely descended into a state of delusion. He believed that someone was actively pursuing him. Perhaps the communists, with whom Forrestal thought war was imminent. Perhaps even radical Zionists, as Forrestal had always been seen as a pro-Arab voice in the emerging Israeli situation after World War II. Whatever the cause of this paranoia, the government thought it best that it be kept quiet. They told his family it was out of respect for this esteemed man. Forrestal was flown to the Naval Hospital in Bethesda purportedly for, quote, security reasons, end quote. Forrestal had entered a severe state of melancholia. It seemed as though he had lost all hope. Friends and family worried he might be suicidal. Yet, against all reason, he was kept on the 16th floor of the hospital, continuously guarded by government agents. His wife and children were allowed to visit once, but his brother, a few other friends, and two priests found it much more difficult to get an audience with him. Two confirmed visitors, on the other hand, were President Harry Truman and Sidney Sowers of the National Security Council, and, like Forrestal, another rumored member of the Majestic Twelve. Mostly, Forrestal was alone as his condition deteriorated. And then came the early morning of May 22, 1949. Sometime between 1 and 2 in the morning, Forrestal attempted to hang himself by tying the belt of a robe around his neck and then to a radiator before leaping out of the 16th story window. The belt snapped and Forrestal fell to the ground below, dying instantly. It was a tragic end but also a famously suspicious one. Seventeen lines from a Sophocles poem were found in Forrestal's hospital room. He had been in the middle of transcribing it when he seemingly decided to hang himself in a peculiar fashion. After all, if one is going to jump from a window, why try to hang oneself simultaneously? These are the questions his family never received an adequate answer to. His brother never stopped believing that someone had killed him. But who could have done such a thing? Following Forrestal's death, 3,000 pages of diary entries he kept during his time in the Truman administration were taken by the White House. The administration claimed Forrestal wanted Truman to have them. But it's historically clear that the two men were quite alienated from one another by 1949. Perhaps the Truman administration just didn't want Forrestal's writings to be made public. Perhaps it even implicated a nefarious conspiracy against him. What do the MJ-12 documents have to say about Forrestal's death? Very little. Quote, the death of Secretary Forrestal on 22 May 1949 created a vacancy which remained unfilled until 1 August 1950, upon which date General Walter B. Smith was designated as permanent replacement. End quote. So was it the communists? Radical Zionists? Or could it have been the CIA? Perhaps on the instructions of a higher authority. Was it, in other words, 
because Forrestal grew tired of keeping the Majestic 12 secrets from the public. There's a sad epilogue to Forrestal's saga. Again, we must circle back to the end of World War II. Forrestal was a close friend of Joseph Kennedy. So when the Berlin Conference was held, the future defense secretary agreed to bring along Joe's son, the junior congressman, John F. Kennedy. There's few details about the relationship between JFK and James Forrestal, but a few things are certain. They spent the week of the Berlin Conference in each other's company. JFK respected Forrestal like a political mentor. Many years down the line, when JFK had ascended to the presidency, he made a documented visit to Forrestal's grave on Memorial Day, 1963. Now, perhaps this was something he did a few times, but there's only recorded evidence of this one visit. This visit coincides with another fringe theory revolving around secret government documents. In this case, the so-called Scorched Memo. In some circles, this memo is included amongst the later finds relating to MJ-12 leaks. In it, the director of the CIA mentions that Lancer, JFK's codename within the Secret Service has been making inquiries about their activities. The document itself shows burn marks, as if it was rescued from near destruction. And while the origins of this document are highly suspect, there are two confirmed documents released under the Freedom of Information Act that date from November 1963. In these, JFK requests that the CIA release all information pertaining to UFOs that they have collected. It's known that JFK was worried about recent UFO sightings over the Soviet Union. He did not want the Soviets to believe these were American spy planes. He was trying to keep a very uneasy stalemate, and these sightings posed a risk. But perhaps this goes deeper. Perhaps if we are to believe that Majestic 12 actually existed, JFK inherited Forrestal's sense of unease about this group's secrecy. Going further, it's possible that Majestic 12 had retreated even further into the shadows following the Eisenhower presidency, hiding their true knowledge and scope even from the president. Is that why JFK visited Forrestal's gravesite on Memorial Day 1963? to seek some form of spiritual guidance? Is that why, in early November, JFK requested the CIA come clean to him about their UFO knowledge? And while this is heading deep into the realm of conspiracy theorists, is that why, a few weeks later, JFK met his own grisly fate in Dallas, Texas, on the 22nd of November? This is speculation, nothing more. But based on the MJ-12 leaks, it's speculation that does possess a shred of evidence. The question now becomes, is it feasible that top levels of the United States government have been engaged in conspiracy for decades? It seems preposterous, yet one must take into account the state of mind following World War II. The government feared UFOs, despite how unlikely and impossible a threat they seemed to pose. Because, to many, before August 1945, 
The atomic bomb seemed impossible, too. The United States had created a godlike weapon. Reality was now a much scarier place, full of unknown dangers, technology, and science that were once out of reach. If anything, at any point, could have pushed top-level officials into creating such an undemocratic and dangerous institution, the threat of extraterrestrials might have been enough to push them over the edge. That, at least, is how the ufologists who came across the MJ-12 leaks, Jamie Chanderay and William Moore, felt all those years later. With these leaks in their possession, what action could they possibly take? They contacted the original Roswell researcher himself, Stanton Friedman. Friedman would become one of the biggest defenders of these documents' veracity over the years. Yet in 1984, the group decided to remain quiet. They began circulating pieces of the leaks around to their closest and most trusted colleagues, but they didn't go wide. If what was contained in these documents was real, they would be wading into dangerous waters. The Majestic 12, or Magic, or whatever they called themselves in modern times, if real, they could have been behind the deaths of people like James Forrestal, or even JFK. A couple of ufologists in Burbank were small fries. But this wasn't the end of the MJ-12 leaks. One way or another, they were going to find their way out into the public's view. Next week, we'll follow that path too. We'll track how the public and government reacted, and we'll dig into the truth of the documents themselves, weighing different sides of the arguments in favor of and against their basis in reality. Because even if the Majestic 12 documents were falsified, they could still hold the key to the mysteries of our most secretive institutions, the collective intelligence agencies of the United States of America. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And next week, we'll continue our investigation into the mystery of the Majestic 12. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Jack Bentel and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rossner.